Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Thanks, Brian. You held your own there. You're a little intimidated about reading the same weekend as Anna Milburn, which is fair. Kind of the, the Michael Jordan of readers, but you held your own. Uh, I was a little insecure about the size of my Bible, so I bought my big one this morning. Just kidding. I actually, I actually, I'm just realizing that I'm getting old and I'm struggling to see the little microscopic one, and I kind of like this one. It's my companion all week, so we'll see how this goes. So uh, I don't know if it's even appropriate to say Happy Lent, but Happy Lent, it's great to be in this season with you, and if it's not familiar to you, it's not super familiar to me either. This is this journey we've been on together here for a couple of years. And what I can say about Lent, whether it's, if you're someone who has very little familiarity, is it's, it's 40 days largely designed around the 40 days of Jesus testing in the wilderness. But part of the design of Lent is just to create this penitent season where uh, we anticipate our own need for the cross. So in the same way that Advent anticipates Jesus' birth, that the design of this season is to really just get a little bit closer to the story and our need for the story, to live into the story a little bit more, I'm thinking of it as just a season where you're creating extra space for, for God just to speak in. And to the extent that we're trying to grow in what it means to be an image bearer of God for those around us, I think much like a training camp or, or even like a boot camp type of thing at the gym or even sometimes in work, sometimes we'll have to do something for a couple weeks or even go off to a class and we know we can't live that way forever or, and stay married, but for a couple weeks, like we, we gotta get super intense. And I, I think that's historically the way the Lent has been viewed is this season where we just take all of that all the more seriously. And yet, one of the things I'm really excited about this year is I've been talking to this guy named Chris who is an, actually an Anglican pastor down in Atlanta and he's the one that reminded me of some work that N.T. Wright has done and that really within the church tradition, there's the 40 days of Lent and there's the 50 days of Easter. And the design is we, we work our way towards Lent in this kind of internally reflective, penitent style, but then in the same way, Easter's too big of a deal to celebrate for an hour on Sunday, and historically it's been celebrated from Easter Sunday all the way up to Pentecost, which is May 28th. And so if you're using that Lent calendar that we produced, that Jody did for us, we're, we're gonna do something similar with the 50 days of Lent, and we've even started conversations even uh, about like what are some of the events that we can put on a radar that are like all-skate type of events or all-invited type of events, and as well as things like classes and maybe a dance class or a gardening class, but also just to live into the season of redemption and the excitement of that season. So we're not just gonna get morose, 
and super serious, we're also going to try to celebrate really, really well. And I think, I think where I'm finding value here is that no matter what your political persuasion or how you're viewing the world, it's increasingly less hospitable to just kind of live within Jesus' rhythms. And I don't think that's even all uh, about like the opposition. It's just there's so much affluence and so much distraction that part of what we're trying to do is just like use the calendar to shape and form us in ways that people have really going all the way back to before Jesus. So th- this, this, this style of a calendar is, is not new to, it's new to us, but it's not new conceptually to, to the history of things. So we kicked it all off on Ash Wednesday this last week, and it was about half of, you know, it was about half of our normal Sunday attendance, so thank you. I recognize it's a really inconvenient time, and for many of you, Ash Wednesday is a very foreign concept, and Wednesdays are busy, and there's just a lot of things going on, and it was 80 below. <laughs> so thanks for being a part of that with us. And the question, if you, if you missed it, just by way of kind of quick review, that we explored there was just like, when's the last time someone was able to look at you and had the authority to look at you and tell you that you were out of line, uh, that you had obeyed, or that you had behaved poorly, that you were wrong. I'm talking about someone other than your parents, Gavin, you don't, or, or, or your spouse, somebody else. Like, there, there's, there's the home style, but for most of us, and really what I'm angling for there is, the older we get, uh, the, the more removed we are from any sense of accountability. And to the extent that this Jesus way of being human is true and accurate and reliable, it's really predicated upon this concept that, that our life is not our own, uh, that we are accountable. Jesus himself seemed to really love stories that captured this idea of stewardship, whether it was uh, the return of a landowner or a vineyard owner. He frequently talked about this idea of, don't, don't you want to hear well done, good and faithful servants? And so what we explored on Ash Wednesday is just, this is a season where we just live into the fact that despite everything else, like, we, we will. And I think part of the invitation of the season, too, is to actually, like, try to, like, make tangible these truths that we give lip service to, but it's so easy to breeze past, but just that, that we actually will stand before God. In fact, uh, I had this moment preparing for Ash Wednesday. I have this picture in my office. Probably lots of you have similar pictures, in my case, of my kids 12 or 13 years ago. My wife, I remember she brought it in uh, pretty early on in our time together. And so it's the type of picture that I, s- I've, I see four days a week, five days a week, uh, and have for over 12 years. Uh, but there was this moment in thinking about Ash Wednesday a couple weeks ago where I like, saw it. And I think part of it is just the season of life. Like I used to look at those of you who are empty nesters and go like, That's, I'll never be there. And then now I'm starting to recognize like it's, it's all kind of I can see it. My oldest doesn't live at home anymore. My youngest is 16. It's just this weird season of life. I was just talking with a friend this week who has little guys in their house. I'm like, I get it. You think this is the rest of your life, but I'm getting old enough to go like, it's, it's really not. So I was looking at this picture and the, the thought that occurred to me was like, that was like 12 years ago. It was like that. And then, and maybe this is too serious and I'm sorry if it is, there was a sense of like, and I'll bet you that's what it's going to be like when I stand before God. Like when I talk to people in their 70s and 80s, they say the same thing, like, it's been like that. So part of the design of this series is just to steward time a little bit better, like it's, it's the resource, isn't it? So the question I wanna ask this morning that, that I think relates in the psalm that we're reading relates is just simply this, next slide. T- to what extent, if any, is confessing sin to God a productive activity? And again, I, I get that that's a really heavy-handed question, and I'll 
come back to that in just a second. But I also want to suggest that this is the type of thing that we do just easily pay lip service to. Like probably the majority of people in this room, and if it's not you, I'm so thrilled that you're here because there's no privilege greater than exploring faith for somebody, with somebody who's not in it right now. But for most of us, our theology would say it is. I think I'm a little bit more focused this morning on our practices. Like, to what extent in our practices, I find myself just real quickly getting up in the morning and opening my Bible and studying and reading, and I can go weeks without ever even acknowledging the concept of, of sin in my life and my need for forgiveness from it. And this reminds me a little bit, like, I, I get that we're a community that's really been founded upon uh, a really important tension, and that is that oftentimes people like me in places like this are really guilty of using things like shame and guilt to just hammer on people. And for some of you, that's a caricature of Christianity that you've never experienced. For some of you, it is something you very much experienced. And I respect that that's, that itself can be toxic. But the real t- challenge, I think, of following Christ is that he, he is the one who is described as being full of grace and truth who had a habit of saying to people, I don't condemn you, now go leave your life of sin. And I think one of the hardest things about being a community in the style that we've tried to be a community is to live within the paradox of God's mercy and his justice. And I think maybe this will be the last time I reference this, but last week I did this thing where I referenced this at this gathering, but not the first one, and that always messes me up in my head. But a friend has got a group of us reading G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, which was written in 1908, was instrumental in C.S. Lewis's Coming to Faith, and one of the things that I, one of his points that, that to me is just really stuck is that, and I think this is because this is my temperament and my bias, I love tension and nuance and I'm not a detail thinker, so I love to just go like, yeah, they're both, they're both true. Like, I don't always do a good job of settling things down to one, but he says that one of the things that really persuaded him into the Christian way of being human was that the Christian way of being human, it does paradox and almost contradiction, if you will, in ways that, that few worldviews, if any, do. That there's lots that do mercy, and I think we do mercy a lot around here, but those tend to be places, he would say, that, that don't do, like just God's justice and our accountability. I forget what word he uses exactly, but then there's other places that, and maybe you grew up in this space and it's what you're trying to leave, that there's places that do like just severity and, and justice and accountability, and they do it almost to, the, to a fault because they don't do mercy. And I think, again, one of the values of trusting these historic seasons is to go, so God is gonna, the calendar is gonna lead us through this season where we get kind of serious. Hopefully not legalistic or judgmental, but, but, but serious. But then we also know that we're also gonna come into this season of, of celebration and mercy and frankly, we spend most of our time around here in that space, and I'm gonna argue that we ought to, that, that God's mercy does trump his justice, but that doesn't mean that they both don't exist. So, the other thing by way of introduction is we are gonna follow the lectionary through Easter. We did it through Advent, and if that's not a familiar concept to you, again, not particularly familiar to me, I did put all, all the Lent readings on the back of the mind map, and if you are interested in that, you can grab one or email me and I can send you the, the PDF. But to understand the lectionary in its like three-minute form is the version that most churches who use a lectionary now, the version that we're using, they're using, goes back to the early 50s. Uh, it's the design of it, it's, it's not accurate to say, so the one that we're using is a three-year lectionary, which is basically 
Uh, People outside of ourselves have curated scripture reading to the calendar. It's not accurate to say after three years you'll have read the whole Bible. There's certain portions of the Bible that just frankly aren't in the lectionary. It's one of the criticisms of it. But it is accurate to say that this isn't a new idea. There was a version before the 50s one, it was actually a one-year lectionary, so it, went, it was a little quicker pace. But even going into Jewish culture, we know that Jesus himself utilized lectionary. In fact, when you read about Jesus going into synagogue and reading from the prophet Isaiah, most historians, dare I say the vast majority of historians would say, he didn't just pick Isaiah, like he showed up and that was, that was the reading that day. And one of the miracles is perhaps that he manipulated things to be that reading that day. So what we're going to do is just sit with that and we're going to spend most of our teaching on the Psalms versions of it. Uh, One final comment there is the design of the lectionary is to take old and new and and the Psalms and Paul's letter and the gospel and to, to illuminate Christ. So as you're going like, why am I reading Genesis 2, which we'll read in a second, why am I reading Matthew 4? Well, first Adam failed, second Adam succeeded. So that's what's going on with the lectionary. But all that to say, uh, the Old Testament reading, so Brian read Matthew 4, Jesus' temptations. Anna read Psalm 32, we'll come back to that. The Old Testament reading would have been Genesis 2. And as I read what I suspect for some of you is a very familiar story, I think the, the implied question is, what's the value of returning to this story every few years? Chapter two, uh, <clears throat> the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, you may, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Chapter three, now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. I think this brings a few questions to the surface that to me, uh, they lead us into Lent. And, And maybe the first one is just simply, next slide, like what do you believe about sin? And again, I'm not asking about your theology. I'm saying in practice, what what do you believe about sin? Does it exist or is it an antiquated idea? Next slide. Like, what do you believe about objective morality? Like, is it intuitive? Or do we have to learn it? And are some people better positioned to learn it because of like generational blessing and other people less well positioned to know it because of generational sin? Is there this thing outside of yourself uh, that, you're, that you will answer to? Is there a standard of being human that Jesus came to help us rediscover? Next slide. Is there a God to whom you will answer? I know these are heavy questions, and again, this is like for 40 days, let's do this heavy lifting. Is there a God to whom you'll answer? And, and if so, like, what do we do with that? Next slide. Do you believe... Uh, that you're prone to do the opposite of that which makes you strong, healthy, whole, and at peace? 
Like in the West, they would say guilty. In the East, they would say sick. I think, here's the paradox thing, they both make sense to me. But the question is really like, do you believe at the core of your being there's a corruption that left to itself will destroy you and everyone that you love? Is that real? Next slide. Do you you believe there's a real evil looking to exploit your sickness and corruption? See, here you see it then, the the lectionary, I think, because we start with Adam and his failure around these topics, and then we get Jesus who stands up under it. In both cases, evil drives a good dialogue, and in one case, there's destruction that comes from it. In another one, there's this pre-existent Christ who stands up under it and leads us into victory through it, and that's what we celebrate at Easter. What do we believe about these things? And the extent to which we do believe them, then what is that supposed to look like in practice? How do we live into this? How do we take this serious? Psalm 32, much like the psalm we spent on um, Ash Wednesday, in my mind is is remarkable for a lot of reasons. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on it. I just want to offer a few comments, which is why I bought my massive thing, but it turns out it's harder to figure out where stuff's at because it's, there we go. Psalm 32, I think one of the important bits of background, and I love, I'm indebted to others for this observation, but I love it. It's written by the most powerful person in Israel, and yet he's dealing with his own personal accountability to God. So here you have King David, who by every human account owes nobody anything and yet is doing this deep soul work with God. Here we go. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Question, what if Adam and Eve would have confessed? It's, I think, a question worth asking, isn't it? Because in whom there is no deceit, it's not that he's perfect. Notice what it's saying is, like, he, he, he brings his imperfections to the surface. And the Psalms, I've always struggled with the Psalms. It's one of those things where I've, like, jumped on the, the treadmill of the Psalms because people that I love and respect, like N.T. Wright, love the Psalms, and I've always read them and went, like, I, they got nothing for me. Could I have some more didactic stuff? But they do make promises. Even though they're music, they're, they're poetry, they're song, They use this word happy quite often because one of the parallels, or excuse me, one of the promises in the Psalms is there are certain things that if you do them, you'll get the fruit called happiness. And notice David ties one of those things to this process of being self-conscious of our brokenness and willing to deal with it. While I kept in silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. When's the last time you just had something tucked away and hidden? Do you remember that gnawing feeling? Now, do that long enough and sometimes you, you can win out. That's also a warning in the text that like today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts because the voice might go away. But do, do, do you know that feeling? And isn't it fascinating that what like, modern psychology would tell us about forgiveness, and you can Google it, there's a lot of data out there on this. David knew, like, he used this really incredible language to describe just the crushing nature of having things hidden. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I'd, 
I did not hide my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and he forgave the guilt of my sin. See, here, here's Chesterton's paradox because notice he's aware and yet he says this God leads through and out of this. This God provides in this place and the first thing that he says he provides is, is forgiveness. This, the weight lifted. And I, I've tried to memorize this next verse. I don't know why it's so stinking hard. I remembered that I tried to memorize it months ago when I was studying for this and then when I came back to it, I was like, oh yeah, I tried and I failed. But I love this next verse. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. Remember, David's a guy who lived in an area where flash floods were the norm. <clears throat> you lived your life in these wadis, these valleys, and when it rained in Jerusalem, you didn't necessarily know that when you were 40 miles away until it was too late. So it's this very vivid picture for them. Think uh, the Yellowstone flood last year. Like, that's what he's describing. And yet notice there's this emotional relief it asks questions about like to the extent to which prayer is even productive. And notice when he says, therefore let all who are faithful, like faithfulness is not perfect. He offers this unique definition of faithful, as I would argue the whole narrative t- does, and it doesn't have to do with perfect, it has to do with forgiven. But then there's, there's, there's this secondary promise in here. He doesn't just offer forgiveness, he offers protection. It's this claim that's made throughout that when we align with God, there's this protection. I will instruct you. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. So part of what I love about this is it's not just spiritual gymnastics. Because he's arguing that also what God provides is teaching. Like not just right, wrong, but here's the way through. It's like the difference, and I'll sometimes hear some of my kids over the years describe this with a coach. Like when I watch a, a kid hit in baseball, like, like the rest of you, I can tell whether or not he's hitting well. And I can be pretty good at saying not well. But an expert, an expert can watch that kid and he can go, okay, not hitting well, but here's all the instruction you need to do it. I was just talking with a friend yesterday who described in his own sport, like just how something like two inches of instruction, like put your hand here, not here, how much that can change. And there's something beautiful that this God, he empowers, not just by saying right or wrong, but going like, no, I'd love to, I'd love to show you. I'd love to walk you through this. It's what Jesus describes as repentance, not just a confession, but a new way of doing things, which is why Jesus says, come follow me. I'd love to show you how to do this. Many are the torments of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Notice the psalm ends on a high note. This is Easter. Like the promise is actually contrary to what we think, you don't walk out of this with less energy, you walk out of it with more. It's like that counterintuitive thing that happens with exercise that, that we all know and yet it's so hard to consistently live out. Doesn't matter how tired you are, after a hike, after a walk, after the gym, you actually have more energy, not less. It seems to be the promise that he's making. And it may be a promise that you've like actually never tried. And that's one of the great things about Jesus is he just goes like, just try it. Just, just, just try it. So as the band comes back up here, I just, I just want to leave you with this, like what might be the ways that God's inviting you into 
a liberation and a freedom. Uh, I'm reminded of many, many years ago when I was on staff at Harvest, I think it was in my early 20s back in Billings, and there was an attempt to start like a men's type gathering. And I, I went, I think I only went once, but on this occasion there was a guy presenting, his name was Eric, I'm gonna guess he was in his early 50s. I'd heard my boss Vern talk about him, but I'd never met him, and he shared his story. And his story was dark. His story was, he was a middle-aged man who traveled for business quite frequently, and he fell into the habit of going online in chat rooms and making connections with teenage girls, and then he would meet them at hotel rooms, and they would have sex. On one occasion, he was in Michigan, he'd made such arrangements, there was a knock on the door, which was the habit, and when he opened the door, he wasn't looking at a 16-year-old girl, he was looking at a couple FBI agents. And as he told his story, of course, he spent almost a decade in prison and lost everything over the deal and found Christ. But as I recall, the beginning of his journey towards Christ was this almost uh, this counterintuitive thing because the first words he said to the FBI agents, guess what he said? He said, thank you. Like this, this kind of raw, honest, just thank you. It seems that that's what the text is saying, that it's a God who invites us into better things, but it involves some work on our part as well. So as we move towards communion, I think what a, what a brilliant way to do this, because that's, that's what we're doing, is in, in, in a micro sense, we're celebrating Lent, or yeah, we're celebrating Lent and Easter every Sunday. Because what we're doing is we're paying attention to Christ did come. And by the way, whatever your Lent fast was, it's off today. I mean, that's up to you. But that would be the tradition. Is like, you don't fast on the Lord's Day. So guess what, kids? You get your screen back today. <laughs> you can negotiate over lunch. <clears throat> but what we're doing here is just giving you a chance to go, okay, Lord, what, what do you want to talk to me about? And then also to like tangibly live into the like, okay, God, I'm confessing this and I'm receiving your forgiveness. And then we take it together because this is, this is a team sport. So I'd like to pray and uh, we'll give you a chance to come receive communion. God, thanks. Um, and God, I pray that as we try to lean in in this season that you would do your own work of keeping us accessible to people and that we wouldn't just be a, a huddle of people who agree but a safe place for people who are still exploring all of this. And, and God, I think really our, our, our request is would you take our ordinary everyday lives and per your promise, send your spirit into us that we could show up in our worlds uh, like you would if you were us. Uh, and, and then God, in the same way, we, we ask that you take this ordinary everyday bread and wine and that you would send your spirit, God. We, there's these long stories of just our need for, for you to provide food. And so we recognize that we're celebrating and reflecting. And we're also clinging to the fact that this life you call us to live is one that, that you have to fuel. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram. 